Hello, and welcome to a bonus box of Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I'm Zekthar, and today we'll be going through the tumultuous time of the Age of Apostasy. <clears throat> now, the Age of Apostasy was split into two major eras. The first was known as the Reign of Blood, which was followed by the Plague of Unbelief. Now, if you wish to know more about the Plague of Unbelief, check out my Vox, The Second Battle of the Fang. Now, in earlier Voxes, we have briefly glossed over the Reign of Blood. But this week, I figured we should get into a little more depth with it. So, sit back and enjoy. Now, to give you a little background to set up this tumultuous era, the Ecclesiarchy had become part of the governing administratum in the 32nd millennium, mainly because this move streamlined the religion's control over the imperial subjects. While it centralized power for the High Lords of Terra, it was an ignorant and foolish move. You see, for a short time, the High Lords benefited with having the Ecclesiarch, the leader of the imperial cult, being a High Lord of Terra, because at the beginning, the Ecclesiarch was focused more on his flock. But as time passed, and new Ecclesiarchs took up the office, the more power they began to take from the High Lords. By the time of the 34th millennium, the Ecclesiarchy held nigh total power over the Imperium of Man, which it used to ensure that every single subject of the Imperium of Mankind in the Imperium paid its dues, both spiritually and financially, to the duly appointed officers of the state faith. Zeal eclipsed reason, and misrule reigned supreme. The word of the Emperor was subverted wholesale by corrupt ideologies, each struggling to usurp total control for themselves. In time, the Ecclesiarchy exercised such power that it began to dictate the policies of the Senatorium Imperialis of the High Lords of Terra. The Ecclesiarch came to be viewed as speaking with the authority of the Emperor himself, and he influenced every aspect of the governance of the Imperium. Perhaps it was inevitable that the other great bureaucracies of the Imperium should grow resentful of the Ecclesiarchy. The Adeptus Administratum, in particular, found its own powers greatly curtailed, for the Ecclesiarchy's tithes took precedence over its own raising of funds and resources, leaving little in the coffers to pay for the running of the Imperium. The Administratum's influence soon waned so far that the Ecclesiarchy was able to dictate policy in secular matters as well. The raising and deployment of armies, the prosecution of wars, the commitment of significant Imperial resources, and the appointment of sector lords all fell under the effective control of the Ecclesiarchy. In time, other institutions began to distrust the Ecclesiarchy. Uh, it was also known as the Adeptus Ministorum. And the Adeptus Astartes and the Adeptus Mechanicus in particular became increasingly estranged. This dark period of history in the 36th millennium came to be known as the Age of Apostasy. Over the course of the 35th millennium, the Administratum managed to claw back some of its former influence, but only through a series of machinations that were ultimately to the detriment of the Imperium as a whole by the insinuation of covert supporters into key positions of power across the Imperium, the Administratum slowly eroded its rival's power and ensured that those officials, the Administratum, did succeed in place were weak, incompetent, or venile. Though this ruthlessly instigated policy regained some of the Administratum's lost power, it set in motion a series of events that would see the Imperium face its greatest catastrophe since the Horus Heresy. In an effort to reverse the decline in its fortunes, Ecclesiarch Benedin IV declared that the Administratorium Upper Echelons would move from Terra to the planet of Philia Seven, a world in the Segmentum Tempestus, and one of the richest in the Imperium after Terra and Mars. 
Moving the operation of the Holy Synod to Ophelia 7 was a vast undertaking, but the effort proved well worthwhile. Separated from the machinations of the Senatorium Imperialis, by 10,000 light years, the Ministerium's power waxed anew. The Holy Synod, the ruling council of cardinals for the Ecclesiarchy, became a force unto itself. And freed from the interference of the other high lords, the ecclesiarch was able to raise entire armies and fleets in order to enforce the state church's newfound influence across the imperium. These forces, known as the Fraturus Templar, came to rival the conventional military armies and fleets of the imperium, and they soon came to be greatly resented wherever they traveled. 300 standard years into this new age of influence and power for the ecclesiarchy in the late 35th millennium, Gregor XI was elected to the rank of ecclesiarch, heralded as a deeply spiritual individual who desired only that the faithful work together as one. Gregor announced that the Holy Synod would return to its rightful home on Holy Terra, the seat of the emperor and the heart of the imperium. The cardinals opposed this course, not least because the ministerium was so firmly entrenched upon Ophelia VII, that a move would be a vast logistical exercise that would stretch the institution's resources to the limit. Subsequently, history would prove the naysayers entirely correct, but none were able to deter Gregor from his grand undertaking. The relocation took over a solar decade to organize and carry out, and it was only possible due to a massive increase in the ministerium's tithes. Gregor was, ultimately, discovered dead, the victim of food poisoning. The true cause of his death may never be known, but the anarchy deepened still further as the ministerium's upper echelons continued as before, imposing more unreasonable demands on their congregations. Eventually, entire worlds buckled under the strain, their own populations starving to fund the reconstruction of the long-abandoned ecclesiarchy palaces on Terra. As if the situation could not get any worse, it does! The entire Imperium was soon plunged in the early 36th millennium into even deeper despair. The incident of warp storms, a phenomenon that cuts off vast swaths of the Imperium's space from interstellar travel, increased by an order of magnitude. The warp began to seethe with rolling energies, which bled forth into real space, making travel between anything other than worlds in the same planetary system increasingly perilous. The central governance of the Imperium worlds that was limited to only periodic contact, at the best of times, entirely collapsed. Seeing that their foes were tearing themselves apart, the myriad of enemies of humanity struck. The traitor legions sallied forth from the Eye of Terror, using their own blasphemous sorceries to strike planets otherwise cut off from outside aid. Orcs traversed the warp in their ramshackled space hulks, uncaring where the tides of the warp regurgitated them and wrecking havoc in regions previously beyond their reach. The Drukhari used their webway to freely navigate the galaxy and struck wherever they desired, dragging millions of captives screaming to the infernal realm of Komarach to suffer tortures and degradations beyond a sane man's imagination. The entire Imperium was gripped by an apocalyptic frenzy of doom and anarchy. Countless new religious sects sprung into being, many proclaiming that the god-emperor was enacting his final judgment upon mankind, and the end times were at hand. No world was untouched by anarchy, as whole populations rose up in increasingly bizarre and extravagant acts of penance and self-flagellation. 
Anyone who dared attempt to reason with such doomsayers were declared heretics, and world after world tore themselves apart in an orgy of bloodletting and violent penance. The time was ripe for a leader with no scruples, but had political clout and a gregarious voice to control the masses. With these skills, a man could rule the empire as a tyrant, an emperor, some might say. That man's name was Goge Van Deer. Now, Goge Van Deer was the 361st Master of the Administratum, a position that he had attained in earlier centuries of the 36th millennium by the ruthless applications of bribes, threats, and outright assassinations. A strident opponent of the power of the Adeptus Ministorum, Van Deer had plotted against it for many years. Shortly before his ascension to the rank of High Lord of Terra, Van Deer brought about the selection of a man of his own choosing to head the Ecclesiarchy, ensuring that none could stand before his subsequent rise. The new Ecclesiarch, Paulus III, was perhaps the weakest man ever to have served in the office, and soon after his ascension, rumors regarding the myriad of degeneracies in which he reveled began to circulate amongst the upper echelons of the Imperium's ruling bodies. As confidence in the new Ecclesiarch plummeted, Goge van Deer made his move. Leading a band of his most trusted retainers, the master of the administratum forced entry into the ecclesiarchal palace, gunning down any who attempted to deny them access to Paulus's personal wing. It is said that when Van Deer and his troops came upon the ecclesiarch, he was engaged in some vile debauchery that, were it known to the people, would bring eternal shame down upon the entire imperium. Without trial or appeal, Paulus III was slain. In what amounted as a daring coup d'etat, Van Deer proclaimed himself both the new ecclesiarch and master of the administratum, claiming control of both institutions. The next day saw the High Lord consolidate his powers in a series of brutal purges of the Holy Synod. Many cardinals simply fled before Van Deer's warriors could come for them, while others were defiant, mounting futile, if brave, objections. These were slaughtered, to be replaced with new cardinals either so weak that they would obey Van Deer's every word, or by cunning supporters who shared his own agenda. With his power base firmly established, High Lord Van Deer was able to give free reign to the unfettered extremes of his ambition. Now, some would question the man's sanity at this point, because the High Lord claimed that he spoke with the authority of the Emperor himself, and that he communed with the God Emperor during the many trance-like fugues into which he would regularly fall. Coming out of these trances, the High Lord would enter a rage, insisting that his every utterance be transcribed by an army of clerks that waited on his every word. Many of these orders defied logic, with Van Deer taking violent action against the whole sections of the Imperium's population. Whether or not this was another ploy to gain further control of his subjects, I don't know. But by this time, one thing was very clear. Van Deer had become drunk with power. His control was near absolute over the entire Imperium, and few dared to stand in his way. I say few because during this time, Van Deer had considerable trouble bringing the Adeptus Astra Telepathica under his control. Lord Fedrus, the master of the Adeptus Astra Telepathica, was a potent psyker, and as such was not swayed by Van Deer's charisma or charm. Fedrus saw through Van Deer's veal of lies and deceit, and understood the corrupt High Lord's true intentions. Now, before we get too ahead of ourselves, you are probably wondering what the devil is the Adeptus Astra Telepathica? Well, to put it simply, the School of Space Wizards. <laughs> the Astral Telepathica is in charge of psychers in the recruiting of such people. 
Anyways, Van Deer realized that Fedris was using his considerable psychic abilities to stay one step ahead of him, and simply killing Fedris would never do, for he would just be replaced by another powerful psyker of equal potency. To remove Fedris required a much more cunning plan. Luring the master of the Astra Telepathica into a trap, Van Deer utilized the innate anti-psyker abilities of a Calexus Temple assassin to nullify Fedris's psychic abilities. The helpless Fedris was then strapped into a specially prepared life support machine, where the Calexus assassin permanently severed Fedris's ability to tap into the warp, making him incapable of using psychic powers. Now, such an operation would have normally killed the powerful psyker, but with a life support system and a bribed Magos biologist, Van Deer was able to keep Fedris alive. Robbed of his psychic powers, Fedris was utterly distraught, which resulted in multiple attempts to take his own life. But Van Deer was always there to thwart him, removing the blade from his hand or to loosen the noose around his neck. In the end, Fedris was broken, and Van Deer achieved his aim, control over the Adeptus Astra Telepathica. If Fedris did his bidding, Van Deer promised that he would not disclose the loss of his psychic capabilities to his subordinates who would have immediately replaced him, and even worse, pitied him. With his powerful position put in jeopardy, Fedris had little choice in the matter and acquiesced to all Van Deer's heretical demands. Gauge Van Deer, by this point, had more control over the Empire of Man than any other person, other than the Emperor himself, in the history of the Empire. Yet he wanted more, always hungering for more. Through trickery and manipulation, Van Deer's grip on the Imperium increased still further when he managed to co-opt Alicia Dominica and her sisters of the newly discovered all-female religious order known as the Daughters of the Emperor from the distant agri-world of San Leor into his personal bodyguard, renaming them the Brides of the Emperor. Having heard of the existence of this small sect of warrior women on San Leor, dedicated to the service of the Emperor who trained themselves in the ancient arts of war as an expression of their devotion, Van Deer realized they would prove to be a potent addition to his personal forces. As such, he arranged for San Lior to receive a rare ecclesiarchal visit. But after the large ecclesiarchal retinue arrived on San Lior and made its way to the Daughters of the Emperor's Covenant, the sisters barred the ecclesiarch from entering, claiming they did not believe that he truly served the will of the Emperor. Having expected such an insolent response from such a pious group of women in light of his reputation as a tyrant, Van Deer knew exactly what to do to get them on his side. Van Deer convinced the daughters that he was personally blessed by the Emperor when he told Dominica to fire a weapon at him. The shot bounced off the High Lord, who was secretly wearing a conversion field generator, though he pretended that it was the Emperor himself who would not allow him to be harmed, earning the daughters absolute but naive loyalty, as they had never seen such advanced technology before. He then took the daughters as his new ecclesiarchal bodyguard and brought them back with him to Terra. From then on, the warrior women became his personal retinue of soldiers and companions, and Vendir renamed them the Brides of the Emperor. They were trained by the best mentors in the Ostra Militarum to combine their own skills with the modern weapons of war. Word of their dedication to the protection of Vendir spread throughout the Imperium. They were his constant guardians and his silent executioners, who would kill with a word from their lord. Now, the brides not only served as Van Deer's bodyguards, but also as his servants and companions. They tasted the High Lord's food, fed him when he fell weak with illness, nursed his frail body back to health, and entertained him with singing, dancing, and <clears throat> other more exotic skills. For all their gaiety on occasion, 
the brides of the emperor were still hardened fighters, and when the Holy Synod of the Ecclesiarchy tried to have Van Deer assassinated a few years later to rid themselves of the tyrant, the brides went into the Synod's meeting chambers, locked the doors, and emerged a solar hour later, carrying the severed heads of every cardinal present. Opposition to Van Deer within the Ecclesiarchy collapsed swiftly soon after. This violent repression and wanton slaughter continued for seven solar decades after Van Deer's ascension to the Ecclesiarchal Palace and provided a new name for Van Deer's rule, the Reign of Blood. The immense resources of the Adeptus Ministorum were directed towards bloodthirsty programs against often imagined heretics and the building of immense new monuments to the Emperor and Van Deer. However, Van Deer's insanity was always directed outward, and though distant planets boasted kilometer-high spires and cathedrals, the Terran Ecclesiarchy Palace was allowed to fall into decay once more. Vast wings of the palace fell silent. None save the brides of the emperor, daring to enter the presence of the High Lord. So erratic had his paranoid outbursts become. For the masses, there were only two choices. Submit utterly to the rule of the High Lord Van Deer or be crushed by the brides of the emperor and the Frateris Templar. Those worlds not gripped by anarchy or locked within a deadly embrace of the warp storms were entirely in Vendir's thrall, the toils of the population directed towards his glory. Yet, in one distant corner of the galaxy, upon the once decimated world of Demimor, there sparked a glimmer of hope. That hope was a man, and his name was Sebastian Thor. Now, Sebastian Thor was a supremely humble priest of the Imperial Creed, who never courted or coveted the immense power he would one day come to wield. He was a simple preacher, but the passion and wisdom of his oratory caused the faithful or Demimar to flock to him from far and wide. He spoke out against the injustice of the High Lord's rule, and while most who did so would soon be ruthlessly suppressed, his supporters always protected him from the attentions of Endir's agents. In fact, Many of the assassins dispatched to deal with the bothersome backwater rabble-rouser were converted themselves and protected him against many subsequent assassination attempts. In a rage at Thor's influence slowly growing across his world, Van Deer mustered a vast army of the Frateris Templar at the Clax system and dispatched them to Demimar to reduce the nest of heretics to ashes once and for all. Yet the army never arrived for the vessels of the fleet that carried it were torn apart as they traversed the warp, by a warp storm so mighty it afflicts the region still, 4,000 Terran years later. Astropaths and other gifted with the Psyker's power claim the screams of those slain in the so-called Storm of the Emperor's Wrath can be heard there even now. Soon, Thor had amassed a sizable following, and people were even traveling off-world to hear his impassioned sermons. It was then that the members of the ancient and prescribed Confederation of Light, a sect of the Imperial Creed that had once opposed the Temple of the Savior Emperor, that became the established Adeptus Ministorum, came to Thor. Men and women who had hidden their faith since the dark time of the First War of Faith in the 32nd millennium. Now, what words passed between Sebastian and Thor and these hooded ambassadors may never be known, but Thor and the Confederation became one. And those who had been so ruthlessly suppressed centuries earlier by the Ministorum were once more a force in the galaxy. Now, you're probably wondering, during this time, what was Mars and the Space Marine chapters doing while all of this was going on? Well, both the Adeptus Astartes and the Adeptus Mechanicus had both become estranged from Terra during Vendir's rule. 
fortifying their own fiefdoms while undertaking their traditional duties as best they could. Space Marines still stood against marauding aliens, and the Forge Worlds and the Mechanicus still churned out the arms and armaments needed to defend humanity from its many enemies. Yet, both institutions did so according to their own judgment, rarely coordinating their long-term goals with those of Terra. The Mechanicus and the mighty Space Marine chapters continued to play only a small role in the events of the Age of the Apostasy. The dangers of warp travel made any long-distance journeys hazardous at best, and impossible in some areas. Instead, the Adeptus Astartes chapters, planets, and forge worlds of the Adeptus Mechanicus became fortresses amidst a sea of anarchy. These organizations were on the defensive, protecting the few star systems they could from the ravages of the Age of Apostasy and the carnage of Endir's reign of blood. With news to Sebastian Thor and the spread of his mighty army of the faithful, the Confederation of Light, Many Space Marine Chapter Masters of the Segmentum Solar and the sectors nearest to Terra and the rest of the Imperium began voicing their support for this reform movement. The Chapter Masters of the Adeptus Astartes and the Fabricators of the Adeptus Mechanicus began to voice their concerns. Gestoth Hedratex, a Fabricator General of Mars and the very highest of the servants of the Machine God, issued a demand to the Holy Synoid. The High Lord Vandir had to be immediately indicated and called to account for his deeds. In response, Vandir dissolved the Senatorium Imperialis, the Council of the High Lords of Terra, and ordered what forces he had left to assault those of the Adeptus Astartes and the Adeptus Mechanicus who questioned his authority. Needless to say, most of Vandir's commanders refused such a suicidal course of action, and the insane High Lord condemned these as heretics. Finally, the Fabricator General saw that he and his allies had no choice but to dispose of Vandir themselves. A vast army of Adeptus Mechanicus Tech Guard, spearheaded by four chapters of Space Marines, which would be the Imperial Fists, Firehawks, Soul Drinkers, and Black Templars, launched themselves towards Terra to besiege the Ecclesiarchy Palace in 378.M36 and what became known as the Terran Crusade. Now, ultimately, it was not the armies of the Space Marines, nor the tech priests that brought about the doom of the High Lord, Goj Vandir. It was his most trusted companions, the Sisterhood of the Brides of the Emperor. Now, throughout the Reign of Blood, one faction had remained apart from the bloodshed and devastation of the era. Within the secured walls of the Imperial Palace, the Adeptus Custodes, the guardians of the Emperor himself, had continued their internal vigil over the Golden Throne. To escape the anarchy that prevailed in the wider Imperium, and to ensure the protection of the Emperor himself, the Custodians had cut themselves off from the outside completely. Only scraps of information passed through the sealed walls of that most sacred of places in the galaxy, and it was only when the Space Marines and the Deptus Mechanicus moved against Vandir that the full extent of treachery perpetrated by the renegade High Lord became known to them. In secret meetings with the commanders of the Space Marines, the Adeptus Custodes learned of the Reign of Blood and how the Brides of the Emperor defended the traitorous High Lord. The mysterious order advised the Space Marines to continue their attack while they would do what they could. A small contingent of Custodians, led by the Centurion of the Companions, made its way into the very heart of Vandir's domain, surfacing within the Ecclesiarchal Palace, not far from Vandir's audience chamber. They were confronted by the Brides of the Emperor, Calling for a truce and a parley, the centurion laid down his weapons and walked unarmed to meet the guardians of Vandir. 
For a solar hour, he made an impassioned plea for the brides to revoke their oaths, striving to convince them that they were fighting for evil, not the emperor. However, they were not swayed by his arguments, and the nameless centurion had only one option left. Leaving his warriors as hostages, the centurion guided their leader, Alicia Dominica, and her personal bodyguard of five female warriors, Arabella, Catherine, Lucia, Mina, and Sylvania, into the center of the imperial palace itself, the Sanctum Imperialis, to stand before the god-emperor upon his golden throne. What occurred in this most sacred of chambers is not recorded, but when the brides of the emperor stepped through the ultimate gate, once more into the outer plane, their eyes burned with unparalleled anger and hatred. Without a word, the centurion led them back through the dark places of the earth, this time leading them directly back to Vandir's audience chamber in the Ecclesiarchy Palace. Alicia Dominica spoke of the treachery of Vandir and his depraved corruption of the Ecclesiarchy, but most of all, she spoke of his twisted perversions of their own order. Burning with shame and anger, they renounced the name of the brides of the emperor and once again became the daughters of the emperor. Alicia Dominica and her vengeful sisters confronted the corrupt Vandir within his own chambers. The words that she spoke during the confrontation are engraved upon the black marble of her sarcophagus. <clears throat> you have committed ultimate heresy. Not only have you turned your back on the emperor and stepped from his light, you have profaned his name and almost destroyed everything he has striven to build. You have perverted and twisted the path he has laid for mankind to tread. As your own decrees have stated, there can be no mercy for such a crime, no pity for such a criminal. I renounce your lordship. You walk in darkness and cannot be allowed to live. Your sentence has been long overdue, and now it is time for you to die. <clears throat> With this proclamation, Dominica drew her power sword and held it aloft for all to see. Vandir glanced around the assembled warriors, his brow knitted in confusion. Even at the end, the insane High Lord appeared so divorced from reality that he could scarcely comprehend Alicia's words. Shaking his head slightly, the High Lord whispered his last words. I, I don't have time to die. I'm far too busy. The power sword slashed down, beheading the traitorous High Lord in one stroke. It was said that Vandir's Roseris, which had protected him upon San Lior, now failed him its gleaming form cleaved in two by Alicia's blow. The reign of blood had ended with a blade wielded by the hand of true faith. Within Vandir's death, order was restored to the Imperium. Sebastian Thor became the new Ecclesiarchy, and he moved to dismantle most of Vandir's reforms and the political power base he had used to enact his tyranny. The Confederation of Light essentially usurped the Temple of the Savior Emperor's theology within the Adeptus Ministorum at Thor's behest. For thousands of standard years, the imperial cult had taught that the state church must be the dominant political organ within the imperium, for only the church truly served the emperor's will, and was capable of making that will manifest for humanity. Now, following Thor's reformations of the ecclesiarchy, the church's focus shifted from the pursuit of secular political agenda to one far more concerned with the pursuit of purely spiritual values. While the Ministorium remained a powerful player in imperial politics as a result of its sheer wealth and sway over billions of believers, its doctrines now emphasize the quest for individual morality and salvation through belief in the God Emperor rather than the acquisition of institutional power. 
Never again would the church so completely dominate the political direction of the Imperium. Independent High Lords of Terra were restored to all the positions of the Senatorium Imperialis, and the Ecclesiarchy and the Administratum once more became autonomous and highly competitive adepta. To restore the proper role of the Adeptus Ministorum and the Imperium, Thor dismantled the fanatical legions and fleets of the Frateris Templar, and issued the decree passive, which held that the Ecclesiarchy could maintain no men under arms. However, seeing that the Ministorium still had need of armed protectors who could work the will of the god-emperor and undertake wars of faith when necessary, Thor soon exploited a loophole in his own decree and transformed the Daughters of the Emperor into the Adepta Sororitas, Orders Militant, who became better known in the Imperial imagination as the Sisters of Battle. But Thor was not the only one who sought to restore balance to the Imperial's political structure. To prevent another tyrant like Vandir from ever again arising from within the Imperium's own internal power structure, two new divisions of the Inquisition were created, the Ordo Hereticus, tasked with eliminating all threats to the Emperor's will, which came from within the Imperium, no matter how high up they were to be found, and the Ordo Sicarius, which was tasked with policing the Officio Assassinorum and ensuring that no Imperial assassin would ever again get diverted from their task to serve their own or some other official's ambitions. Now, Euxen and I have discussed the three major Inquisition branches, the Ordo Hereticus, Ordo Malus, and Ordo Zenos, Yet there are many smaller branches within the Inquisition known as the Ordo Minoris, which we haven't discussed. The Ordo Sicarius is such a branch, and their part in the story is actually fairly interesting. You see, Van Deer had managed to corrupt many within the Officio Assassinorum, just as he had bribed and blackmailed his way through the other Imperial Adepta. Foremost amongst Van Deer's agents was Ziz Jarak. Using the shape-shifting drug polymorphine, Jarek had assassinated the Grand Master of Assassins who led the Officio Assassinorum and assumed his identity. However, unbeknownst to Jarek, the Grand Master had expected such a plot and had a decoy assassin take his place in his chambers. As such, Jarek had not killed the true Grand Master, who secretly mustered those still loyal to him and the Emperor to fight against this usurper. A heinous battle raged within the Imperial Palace itself, amongst the various factions of the Assassins, as they brought their terrible skills to war. Ancient arsenals of the official Assassinorum were unleashed, and terrifying weaponry, long since banned by the Senatorium Imperialis, were brought to bear by the Assassins on both sides against one another. In the end, the true Grand Master assassinated Jarek, and disappeared into self-imposed exile. The officio's hierarchy was shattered and needed to be rebuilt from the ground up. After the conclusion of the Wars of Vindication, following the thorough investigation, Inquisitor Jaeger deemed that a special order of Inquisition was needed to monitor and to control the officio assassinorum much more closely. His proposal was accepted, and the hidden order of the Inquisition, known as the Ordo Sicarius, was created to monitor the officio assassinorum for signs of corruption and to police their activities to prevent such an event from ever occurring again. As the officio assassinorum is a highly secretive branch of the imperial hierarchy, the only way to properly monitor its operatives was to plant assassin acolytes and inquisitors within their ranks. Acolytes of the Ordo Sicarius often find themselves placed within the trusted circles of many high-ranking members of the Imperium, or on loan to the Inquisitors of other Ordoses, where their skill set would be extremely useful. 
As an added precaution, the various assassin temples' operations were split up and scattered to separate locations throughout the galaxy from Terra to ensure that if one should fall to Xenos' influence, demoncy, or heresy, another would remain untainted. Further rules were also put into place to ensure that no single individual could abuse wielding the immense power of the Officio Assassinorum to serve their own ambitions. The Ordo Sicarius is therefore responsible for investigating and controlling the Officio Assassinorum. By ancient decree, no Imperial Assassin may be deployed without the consent of the High Lords of Terra. This is, of course, highly impractical, and quite often an Inquisitor of the Ordo Sicarius will sanction the Officio Assassinorum under the guise of an edict from Terra. While some believe this to be an abuse of their power, in a galaxy-spanning civilization, such measures are essential to maintain an adequate level of response to the myriad threats faced by mankind. The Ordo Sicarius is also responsible for overseeing the Calexus Temple of the Officio Assassinorum, whose operatives are uniquely psychic blanks. Between the Ordo Sicarius and the operatives of the Calexus Temple, an Inquisitor has a much greater chance of encountering, and perhaps even studying, an untouchable as the number of individuals born with the anti-psychic paragene is vanishingly small in the total human population. However, a member of the Ordo Sicarius is able to gain access to such individuals every few standard years and study them at length. Now, they're kind of an interesting and quirky branch in my opinion, but I digress. We must press on. The Sisters of Battle were named the Chamber Militant of the Ordo Hereticus, for while they shared the faith of the Ministorium, their ultimate loyalty was to the God Emperor alone, and the Inquisition always spoke for the Emperor. In a clash between the Ministorium and the needs of the Imperium as defined by the Ordo Hereticus, the Ordo's militant of the Adeptus Sororitas always look to the Inquisition first. For the best part of the next century, Thor worked tirelessly in reforming the Imperium. Most of this he did on the road, though, going from planet to planet, helping the Ecclesiarchy get on the right path wherever he went, and doing what he loved doing best, preaching the God Emperor's will to the people. Now, Thor did eventually return to Terra at the age of 112, where he died six months later. Ironically, his preserved head is currently in the possession of Trezine the Infinite. Now, how Trezine got his hands on a priest's head is beyond my knowledge, but more than likely, he stole it. The most brutal part of the Age of Apostasy was over, but the plague of unbelief was about to begin. Well, folks, that's about all the time I have for today. Remember, if you want to know more about the Plague of Unbelief, check out my Vox, The Second Siege of the Fang. If you enjoyed this Vox, feel free to subscribe, comment, follow, and like. And if you really like our stuff, please join our membership squad on the YouTube channel, Tales of Asheraka. We also have a shop up and running, so feel free to stop by and check it out. Have a great day, and as always... <clears throat> Until next time, this is Ekthar, signing off.